Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I typically watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. However, because it's Halloween and my nephew texted me and suggest I do The Shining, which, by the way, didn't win a single Oscar, I decided to do a bonus episode. You're welcome. I'm still going to follow parts of the same template I use every week, the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it about, and I'm going to answer the three important questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is it just a steaming pile of donkey poop that no one should ever have to sit through? Just as a friendly reminder, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you'll get my hot takes on many current events mixed with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure to listen with caution. I also tend to rant on about shit that pisses me off, so you have been warned. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's bonus film is The Shining. It was released May 23rd, 1980. It is directed by Stanley Kubrick. It stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. It was nominated for a total of zero Oscars. Reaction... (laughs) I shouldn't be so mean. Reactions at the time of the film's release were mixed. Stephen King criticized the film due to its deviations from his novel on which it was supposed to be based. Over time, critical response has become more favorable. In 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. If you want to watch it, it can be found on HBO Max and True TV for free if you have subscriptions. Otherwise, you can watch it on Amazon, Vudu, Redbox, or Apple TV streaming services for $3.99. So what is it about? Jack Torrance, played by Nicholson, is a struggling writer who takes a job as the winter caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. Even though it's located in the heart of the beautiful Rocky Mountains, the hotel closes during the winter season due to the enormous expense of maintaining it. It's 25 miles from the closest town, and the road can often be buried under 20 feet of snow. It's just simply not feasible to keep it open. Jack's role would be simple. He's basically a glorified maintenance man. He's expected to run the boiler, heating different parts of the hotel, and do small repairs as needed. The remote hotel is a perfectly idyllic place for Torrance to overcome his writer's block and a seemingly fun adventure for his wife, Wendy, and their son, Danny. The hotel itself is magnificent. Glamorous ballrooms, big grand hallways, gorgeous artwork, hundreds of well-appointed guest rooms, and a kitchen stocked well enough to feed an army. At the time of his interview, Jack is told of the hotel's unfortunate history. It turns out that years earlier, a previous winter caretaker, a man named Delbert Grady, had gone a little crazy and killed his wife and two daughters before killing himself. Torrance isn't deterred by the creepy circumstances. He's not a guy who scares easily. And he's sure his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, with her passion for ghost stories and true crime, will find it all very intriguing. But guess what? 
it's not going to be intriguing. Their five-year-old son, Danny, is gifted with psychic abilities. His visions, they refer to as shining, are communicated through conversations with his imaginary friend, Tony. Danny has a vision where he sees horrific things that have happened at the hotel. Basically, this sweet little boy is seeing the horror that took place at the hotel all those years ago, but he doesn't really understand what it all means. During their arrival tour at the hotel, Danny meets the head chef, a man named Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, who also has psychic abilities. Because they both have the shine, they will be able to communicate with each other telepathically, a detail that will come in handy later. Danny is nervous about the hotel because his imaginary friend Tony has given him the impression that it is a bad place. Dick calmly explains that bad things sometimes happen, and they leave behind a trace that normal people can't see. And just like they can see that things that haven't happened yet, people with the shine can also see things that happened a long time ago. He lets Danny know that a lot of things have happened at the Overlook, and not all of them have been good. Now, this would be the perfect time for Danny to pull his mom aside and let her know they're in danger, and they need to get the fuck up out of there. But he doesn't. And it only takes about a month of isolation before things start to go horribly wrong for the Torrance family. Jack's mental health starts to deteriorate. He can't get past his writer's block and he's become more prone to violent outbursts. Danny's visions continue to get worse. He sees images of two young girls, the ones we know to have been murdered by their father. They keep trying to lure him into playing with them and following them to forbidden parts of the hotel. Pretty soon everything comes to a head. Jack's gone completely crazy and starts to have dreams about killing his family. He's volatile and unpredictable. Danny gets unusual bruises and Wendy assumes Jack is hurting their son, but it's something far more sinister than that. Unfortunately, a record-setting snowfall is about to trap them all inside the hotel, and then all hell breaks loose. This hotel has a dark, deadly history, and there's still evil that lurks within it. It seeps into the mind of Jack Torrance, and he becomes a murdering psychopath. He's hell-bent on repeating the horrible history of the Overlook Hotel. Question one. Does The Shining stand the test of time? I guess so. The movie has become a pop culture phenomenon, greatly increasing in popularity over time. And while I agree it still very much succeeds in being a creepy psychological thriller... I'm going to have to take issue with a couple of things. Let's start with the complete lack of ability to learn from one's past mistakes. Today in 2022, if you owned a big fancy resort where one of your employees, while he was on the clock, murdered his wife and children with an axe, then put a shotgun in his own mouth, and people accepted your explanation that he must have just gotten a little cabin fever from being so isolated. Why the fuck would you allow it to happen again? How about forking over just a little bit of extra payroll to have, well, you know, a team of people there during the winter? That way, if one person starts to go a little wackadoodle, you have others to help keep shit contained. Maybe hire a couple security guards or add cameras or emergency alarms. Maybe you work with local police and the forestry service to have them stop by each week to ensure everything was okay. Knowing the winters are brutal, how about additional backup communication tools or for when the lines go down or when the roads are blocked? I'm no marketing genius, but I know enough about business to understand that when murders have taken place on the premises, 
it can be a pretty big turnoff for some of your customers. And you're probably doomed if you're stupid enough to let it happen more than once. And I know this strays from the Stephen King novel, and it's not going to earn me any points with the movie's fan base. But we have to admit they fully ruined the Wendy character by making her a weak and feeble crybaby. In the beginning, it appears that she's just politely acquiescing to her husband, sort of a go-along-to-get-along type who just simply doesn't want to cause problems. But we get to a point where he's just flat-out disrespectful, and I mean literally telling her to shut the fuck up, leave him the fuck alone, and to go the fuck away. He's a cruel, insensitive bastard, and I have a really hard time understanding why she puts up with it. At this point, the snowstorm hasn't hit yet, so there's no reason why she can't delightfully say in her sweet little voice, okay, hon, I'll leave you alone now, and then head right back upstairs, pack a suitcase, grab her kid, jump in the snowcat, and drive herself right out of his life. Now, I have to have a moment of fairness here. It is 1980, and Wendy doesn't have a job, so my guess is that she probably doesn't have her own bank account or her own credit cards. She's never thought about leaving her miserable, bossy bastard of a husband because she can't. She's too reliant on him. So therefore, she needs to just smile and say, okay, hun," and walk away. Luckily, many women today have the capability to build a stronger foundation for themselves. So if they ever needed to walk away from a dangerous situation, there are more options available to help them do so successfully. One more thing I want to mention, and I'm not sure if this contributes to it standing the test of time per se, but I think it's really cool when there are little tidbits that add an extra layer of legitimacy in a movie. The Shining is set in Colorado, which is where I lived as a kid from 1975 to 1988. And there's a scene in the movie where Scatman Crothers is driving in his car, listening to the radio. Now, if you lived in Colorado for any amount of time during this three decade span of the 70s, 80s and 90s, you'll know that everyone listened to K-H-O-W, Hal and Charlie in the morning. And of course, that is who he's listening to on the radio. And when I say everyone listened to Hal and Charlie, I'm not kidding. At one point in the early 80s, they had a 25% share of the audience. So what that says is that of everyone within listening range of this radio station, perhaps millions of people, one in every four were tuning in to Hal and Charlie each day. And here it is 40 years later, they are forever memorialized as part of this classic horror film, which I think is abundantly cool. The only other thing that could have made me more nostalgic for my Colorado childhood would be if they mentioned Casa Bonita. Now, thank God for those South Park guys who are giving Casa Bonita the resurgence it so rightly deserves. That place is like the Taj Mahal of Lakewood, Colorado, and that's a hill I'm willing to die on. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Well, no, of course it isn't. That's why it wasn't nominated for any Oscars. This is a bit of a departure for Stanley Kubrick, who was considered a groundbreaking cinematographer and is considered by many to be the most innovative filmmakers of all time. Throughout his career, he was nominated for 13 Oscars, but he only won once. It was for Best Visual Effects for 2001, A Space Odyssey. The Shining does have some impressive visual attributes, which I'll get to in a minute. Quickly, let me take a minute to talk about the acting. This is another quintessential Jack Nicholson role, perfectly matched to his maniacal acting style. He does appear in several of the movies on this list that have won Oscars or were at least nominated, so he's clearly seen as one of the most prolific actors of his generation. There are several scenes in this movie where he was allowed to improvise, and while 
I think there may have been movies where he tends to overact and make the character appear to be more Looney Tunes than he really is. I think it's well placed here. He demonstrates very clearly how Jack Torrance is slipping into insanity. Honestly, I, I think Nicholson delivers his best in everything he does. I can't think of a single movie where he just dialed it in, right? It's not like Jack to just show up and collect a paycheck. And this is another performance that shows you how good he can be. I think Shelley Duvall, as an actress, would probably be a pretty decent selection in a supporting role. But I will say I don't think she was right for this movie. And to be honest, I don't think it was her fault. Like I said earlier, the movie version of Wendy Torrance, in my opinion, is portrayed as nothing more than a frightened weakling. The way it's written, I don't think there could be any actress who could come out of that looking like a strong, confident mom protecting her kid. Unfortunately, it's just not written that way. You can't get blood from a stone. There are also many stories that surfaced after the movie's release of how Kubrick was just insanely brutal to Shelley Duvall on the set, isolating her from others, bullying her, and making her do more than 100 takes of a scene just to get it exactly the way he wanted it. At some point, I honestly don't even think she's acting anymore. I think she's tired and miserable and just crying because she wants it to be over. And that's what we're seeing on the screen. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I think everyone should watch it, but probably just once. I find that it loses something every time I rewatch it. The big scary things like Red Rum and Danny's Visions and Room 237, those will all have you on the edge of your seat the first time. But once you know what's coming, it loses a bit of its luster. Just like all of Stanley Kubrick's other films, this is a visual masterpiece. The scenes of Danny riding his big wheel through the hotel are so simple, yet so artistically amazing. It is the first time anyone used a steady cam, which allows for smooth handheld camera movements. Yes, I did have to look that up. Anyone who has an eye for creative camera work or compelling cinematography will enjoy this, and I can understand why. It's incredibly innovative. And even though it's horrifying, like what you're seeing is supposed to scare you, but you can't help think, wow, that's really cool. How'd they do that? So yes, I think it's worth a watch. And I want to get that on the record before I say this next part, because I'm probably going to burst some bubbles with what I'm about to say. And I get that I keep beating the same drum, but I'm, I'm going to do this one last hypercritical thing and then I'll shut up. If you are a woman who is even just the slightest bit badass, someone considered to be strong and independent and not afraid to stick up for yourself, you are going to struggle watching this movie. You'll find it bothersome that Wendy Torrance has a complete lack of survival instincts, like none whatsoever. And I was surprised to find out that a woman co-wrote this script. I'm not being critical of women or female characters. I'm being critical of how these two writers wrote this particular character. And I know people will say, oh, but it was 1980 and women weren't portrayed as tough and strong. Bullshit. Norma Ray had come out the previous year winning Sally Field an Oscar for Best Actress. So there would have been an appetite for Wendy Torrance to have just a little bit more gusto. But the writers knowingly made this character timid and ineffective. And the director bullied his female lead into portraying her exactly as it was written on the page. Maybe their intent was for her to be so horrified, so completely frightened that she couldn't think straight. So she was basically paralyzed with fear. Okay, maybe that's it. But as a viewer, it's just not what you need or want her to be. 
We all know that when your life is in danger and you are responsible for protecting your innocent child, you have two options. It's not that hard. It's fight or flight. Standing there crying like a big tub of goo is not one of the options. If your husband has threatened to kill you and your son, but at this very moment, you are the one holding the baseball bat, girl, you better swing that thing like you're fucking Hank Aaron. You don't accidentally give him a little cut on the head. You make damn sure he never gets back up. And as I mentioned earlier, that she could have run away before the storm hit, but even afterwards, that hotel is easily 400,000 square feet of places they can hide. She doesn't even try. They just go hang out in the apartment, hoping that Jack doesn't come get them, which of course he does. And at one point, she is armed with a carving knife from the hotel's kitchen that's, oh, I don't know, probably seven or eight inches in length. It could do some serious damage, but not in the hands of this character. Instead, they have her running down endless hallways, limp-wristed, ill-prepared, not paying any attention to what danger could lurk around the next corner, and crying the entire time. (laughs) Seriously, the entire time. Let me give you a visual. You know when you drive past one of those used car lots and they have those tall, skinny, inflatable men flailing, you know, their arms are flailing everywhere, blowing this way and that. That is what they turn this character into. And we're expected to believe that she is the one who's supposed to save the day? Yeah, I'm sorry, but it's just so disappointing. We know there are so few really great movie roles written for women anyway. So it just frustrates me to see this one that could have been really great get wasted. Ultimately, I don't mean to put you off this movie. The Shining is a really good thriller. It's creative. It's visually impactful. And it does a good job of scaring the shit out of you. It becomes more of a cult classic with every passing year. So you should watch it just so you know what everyone's talking about. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been a Halloween bonus episode of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment, maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.